Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Jessica Townsend, is the author of the debut novel, Nevermore, The Trials of Morrigan Crow, which has had the biggest children's debut in the Australian market since records began. She's outsold the debuts and first in a series title of such mega-selling authors as Philip Pullman, Lemony Snicket, Christopher Paolini, David Wallums. John Flanagan and Suzanne Collins. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the fabulous success so far of Nevermore. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a great couple of weeks. Very overwhelming, but but brilliant. Yeah. I, were, were you expecting? I know there's been a lot of promo, but were you expecting to? Were you expecting to to uh, be the biggest? Definitely not. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I'm still not sure. I totally believe it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I on, on the one hand, you know, I know that um, Hachette, my publishers, are, you know, brilliant at what they do. So I know that they were sort of working very hard and, and giving it their all. So, you know, I, I knew that things would go well from from their side of it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the way that it's sort of been embraced is a really lovely surprise. Yeah. Um, I think listeners would love to just hear a little bit uh, from the book. Would you mind just reading us some? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, So this is a little bit from when Morrigan uh, first arrives in Nevermore. Uh, Welcome to Nevermore. The mist cleared, revealing an enormous stone archway with silvery gates that shimmered like heat from a stovetop. Nevermore. Morrigan rolled the word around in her mind. She'd seen it only once before in her bid letter from the Wondrous Society. It had meant nothing to her at the time, just a nonsense word. Nevermore, she whispered to herself. She liked the way it sounded, like a secret, a word that somehow belonged only to her. Jupiter put Octavia into gear as he read from a screen displaying notices. Local time, 6.13am on the first day of morning tide, spring of one, third age of the aristocrats. Weather, chilly but clear skies, overall city mood, optimistic, sleepy, slightly drunk. The gates groaned open and the arachnopod shuddered into life. Morrigan breathed deeply as they entered the city. Having never been outside the town of Jackalfax, she was unprepared for what lay beyond the gates. In Jackalfax, everything had been neat and orderly and normal. Homes sat side by side in uniform rows, identical brick houses on straight, clean streets, one after the other. After the first neighbourhood in Jackalfax had been built 150 years earlier, subsequent boroughs were all built in, if not precisely the same style, similar enough that if one were looking at Jackalfax from above, one might guess the entire town was designed by a sole, miserable architect who hated her life. Nevermore was no Jackalfax. We're in the south, said Jupiter, pointing at a map of Nevermore on the screen of his control panel. The arachnopod scuttled low through the darkened, mostly quiet streets, dodging the odd pedestrian here and there. Evidence of the night's eventide celebrations was strewn about the darkened streets. Balloons and streamers littered front yards and lampposts, and early morning street sweepers collected discarded bottles in huge metal bins. Some people were still out celebrating in the bluish pre-dawn light, including a group of young men crooning the poignant morning tide refrain as they stumbled out of a pub. Octavia sped through cobbled lanes, narrow alleys and sweeping boulevards, some neat and old-fashioned and others flamboyantly hectic. They floated through a borough called Ogden-on-Juro that looked like it was sinking. 
The streets there were made of water and people rowed little boats through swirling mists that rose around them. Everywhere Morrigan looked, there were rolling green parks and tiny church gardens, cemeteries and courtyards and fountains and statues, illuminated by warm yellow gaslights and the occasional rogue firework. She was up, out of her seat, moving from window to window, pressing her face to the glass as she tried to take it all in. She wished she had a camera. She wished she could jump out of the arachnopod and run through the streets. So tell me about the arachnopod. I mean, there are lots and lots of fun things like the arachnopod. Um, Did you just sit down and make a list of all the fun things you wanted to include in the novel before you wrote it? Um, a little bit of that and a little bit of just, you know, odd little absurdities sort of occurring to me as I went along. Um, I, I kind of think of this as a bit of a kitchen sink novel in that, you know, every, I mean, I wrote it over a long period of time. So I wrote it and, and plotted the whole series over about 10 years. So um, I, I sort of felt like every new idea that occurred to me that probably could have been a little story of its own, I just sort of went, well, I'll just put that in Nevermore. Um, <laughs> so it, it has ended up this kind of, you know, weird stew of of every weird little idea that I had over a 10-year period. Yeah, and maybe that's the, you know, the, the secret to just make it so fun. Because if it's fun, I guess if it's fun for you, it's fun for the reader. Oh, 100%. I'm convinced that that's the only reason that I ended up actually finishing writing this novel is that I, I really just wrote... Um, you know the story that I loved, and I and I wrote something purely to entertain myself. And um, you know, if if I had made some kind of laborious job of it, you know, trying to write something worthy or something or something that I thought publishers wanted to publish or people wanted to read, um, I feel like it would have been quite boring. Um, so instead, I just had to kind of make it all of the things that I loved. And I think that maybe that combination of you know maybe that specificity is is what made it work in the end. Yeah, and and the name Nevermore. Um, is there a bit of wish fulfillment in in this place? Uh, for, for, do you mean for me as the author, or for the reader, or for Morrigan? Yeah, for all of those <laughs> all things. Three. Is it kind of like you know a place you that we we all kind of want to wake up in? <laughs> oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah, for me, I, as I said, I wrote the story that I loved, and I. I love world building. I love, you know, I, I feel like the story, the plot here is really just um, kind of a framework for me to for me to hang the world on. Um, it, it is definitely a place that I would love to to run away to. <laughs> um, there is a lot of, you know, magic and whimsy, but then there is also a lot of um, a lot of danger in this city. It's got, you know, that the name Nevermore sort of. I, I, I wanted to come up with a name that conjured something that felt magical and and whimsical and otherworldly, but also had that that element you know that slightly dark edge to it Mm, for sure yes I mean I I almost feel you can trace the trajectory of the story you know right back to things like where the wild things are this notion of a you know an, an alternative reality that's it's dangerous because partly because it's not pedestrian it's you know it's not here it's not what we're comfortable with anything can happen around the corner but it's also so exciting Right. I mean, it, it's kind of, it's part of that long tradition of, um, you know, escapist stories where you think that you're getting one thing, you think you're getting this exciting, wonderful world. And actually, you know, the the other side of that is that, well, it's it's exciting and it's magical, but as you say, any anything could happen in this city. Um, 
and and you know sometimes it's not always good things <laughs> uh, but yeah I, th- those are the sort of stories that I loved growing up um, you know s- stories of you know I, I love second world fantasy and I love portal fantasies and um, you know those those stories of the that that archetype character of the unloved underappreciated child being spirited away into a world where she you know feels that she's been embraced yes and yet and and that's also I think part of part of why it's so good is that Morgan the the world is is completely fantastic you know Morgan is you can totally relate to her she's very much like many many children of her her age and her situation though extreme <laughs> right right and I mean I feel like that age that that's kind of why I love writing like why I love writing middle grade um is that age is exactly when kids are starting to have more of an awareness of their own place in, you know, in their family, in their group of friends, in the world, um, and and starting to think about things more and, and question things. And and it, and every kid that age, I think, has, you know, Morgan is, as you say, the extreme version of that because she is cursed and she's blamed for everything that goes wrong. Um, and I, I don't know many kids who haven't felt like that at one point or another um, in their life where they feel like they're, they're getting the brunt of the blame for everything. Um, and so, yeah, Morrigan does sort of embody that, um, that, that double-sided thing of, I, you know, she's been conditioned to feel that she's to blame for everything. But also on the flip side, there's this inner pragmatist that fights and, and rebels against that idea um, because she is a rational, you know, normal human child mm. who, who really can't understand why she, why she could and how she could possibly be to blame for all of these ridiculous things. Yes. And we all know the long, difficult history um, of J.K. Rowling's attempt to get Harry Potter published. Um, I, I suppose going into having a, a fantasy published um, that might have been at the back of your mind, were, were you quite surprised when it ended up with kind of eight publishers biz- bidding for the rights and, and a pre-sold trilogy? Uh, yeah, I mean, deeply surprised. <laughs> really, really surprised. Um, that that all happened. I mean, I say I was going to say it, it happened so quickly. It, you know, it, this story has been with me for so long. So it's not like it was some kind of weird overnight thing. I was working on it, you know, in every spare hour that I could that I could wrangle for you know ten years. Um, but then when things kicked off, when we went to when we went on submission, my agent and I. Um, everything happened within a matter of days, which was really surprising for me because even when I geared myself up to approach literary agents, I so much of what you read online is that, um, you know, it, it's a struggle and that agents take months and months and months to get back to you. I think I was lucky. I queried at the right time of year or something um, and things happened pretty quickly. Um, so I was expecting to be in it for the long haul. But, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned J.K. Rowling because, honestly, I think that she – has sort of paved the way. We are in this golden age of children's writing and children's novels. Um, and I, I think that, you know, she did she did struggle for so long to get a publisher. But because there was a J.K. Rowling, you know, publishers are now, um, they have much more of a sort of eagle eye and a much more, um, you know, quick on the trigger when it comes to children's novels. Do you think as well, I mean, we you know, this sort of the rise of populism, not something I particularly like, but in a literary sense, um, you know, there's a lot of say for people online so that the market itself can be very explicit about what it wants. And then I guess publishers can tap into that, that it's no longer really um, 
people in ivory towers deciding what gets publicity and what doesn't. I mean, I think what people want is very clear through social media and, and other forms of, um, I guess, of uh, venues that people can, can come out and say, you know, this is what we're looking for. This is what we want to read. This is what we want to read more of. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that social media has been kind of a benefit in that way because, you know, people are much more vocal. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, if I if I look at it less from a publisher's point of view and more from an author's point of view, um, that doesn't bother me at all because, I, you know, I, I don't feel like I can listen to a million voices telling me what they want to read. Yeah, that's a fair <laughs> I point. Can, you know, because, because that is that is how you get generic stories that's how you get um you know a a story that's written for a target demographic not a story that's written to tell a story um and for me I I mean I I am very hesitant to sort of second guess you know why people have sort of taken to Nevermore so much because I would never want to speak for anyone else but I imagine that it is possibly as I said earlier is that that specificity of I wrote this story for an audience of one um, and there was never a guarantee that it would appeal to the masses <laughs> at all. There was never a guarantee that it would appeal to anyone outside of my own head. Um, but, you know, I think that when you when you write with that kind of, um, I feel like I just keep reusing the word, but specificity is the only sort of word I can think of to, to suit, um, you know, you're, you're not creating some generic mass-produced story. You're creating that something that, you know, hopefully will appeal to people because it was written for an audience of one if that I don't know if that sort of makes sense to you or not oh I yes I I agree completely because one of the first things that struck me when I was reading the book was how broad the potential target market for the book is that it 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 certainly could appeal to a much younger audience but uh, you know as an adult I was reading it my daughter who's 14 um picked it up in fact she picked it up first <laughs> when it came through the door she's like oh, oh this looks interesting um and, and immediately read it and then you know basically threw it at me and said read it now stop everything so (laughs) (laughs) so you know I imagine that it would still be suitable for you know an eight-year-old and and even younger to have it read to them so the the target market is pretty pretty wide right um yeah exactly I I never you know I and it's not something I was thinking of when I was writing Mm. and I and I think that that's almost it's almost toxic to a writer to think of um, you know, who, who's reading this, who am I writing it for? Will this be understood? But, you know, obviously those sort of, um, thoughts and those doubts can creep in, especially when you are writing a story like this, which has some real sort of slightly bleak, you know, macabre elements to it. There's a, there is a lot of darkness in this story alongside, you know, the humor and the magic. Um, but when you are writing something quite dark, it's easy to sort of second guess and, and think, well, I'm writing this for an eight to 12 market. So will eight year olds, you know, but I just think, as I say, it's poisonous to think in that way. Um, you know, but I, I, I never wanted to, I never wanted to talk down to my readers. I never wanted to make things easy. There are some difficult words for an eight year old in this book. Um, but for me, that's, I, I know that that's how I learned that you know that's how that's how you build your vocabulary for one thing yes. is reading unfamiliar words and figuring them out from the context so and, you know and that's you know, that's not something that I, young I readers can be pretty sophisticated I mean speaking as a parent you yeah. know some of the stuff that they are quite happy to cotton on to or to to play with you know can be quite surreal 
Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I have nieces and nephews and some of the conversations that we've had with them growing up, I just think, gosh, where did that, where did that come from? Mm. Um, and they're exposed to so, so much content. I mean, I hate using the word content because it sounds so clinical, but they are, pronounced, they are um, exposed to so much content these days, not just great books, but also, you know, online content and so much, so much interesting television. And, um, you know, I, I feel like they, they do pick things up by osmosis and they do get much more of a, of a keen understanding of, um, you know, just the, the, the world that we're living in, I suppose. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's talk about magic. It's all, it's all throughout the book. Um, it's, it's part of, you know, I think part of what makes the book so special. Do you find yourself as an author drawn to it? Yeah, I, I, I feel like there was never sort of a question of not having magic in this book. It's a diff. It is a very different sort of magic. It's not, um, and, and I suppose every fantasy has its own particular kind of brand of magic. But this isn't like you know amulets or magic wands or anything like that. Um, I, I suppose when you're when you're writing fantasy, everything has to have some kind of magical system because that sort of gives you the playground. Um, in which to play and in which to build this world. Um, I've always been drawn to to stories that had magic in them, just because you, I love having that sense of possibility when I'm reading. That you know, you have you have the familiar aspects from your own world, but also um, you know that that kind of scope for your imagination, where well, you know, this this is a world I'm unfamiliar with. This is a magical system. Uh, anything could happen in this world. So I think I think magic pres- presents that kind of, you know, that sense of possibility, and that's maybe what people enjoy. Yes, I mean I think, and I don't want to give too much away, um, but one of the most magical aspects of the world is wonder, and and of course it's aptly named. Um, did you invent it completely, <laughs> or or is there some physical or literary inspiration for it? Um, I mean, look. I, there was nothing in particular that I was thinking of. There was, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm not the first person to come up with some kind of magical energy idea. You know, that's not, I'm, I'm certain that's, you know, not a, not a totally original idea, but I, I can't, I can't think of anything that I was specifically thinking of at this time. Um, it just sort of made sense to me because what I wanted to create, this isn't, this isn't high fantasy. Um, you know, it's not like a feudal system of lords and ladies and there's not, um, as I say, it's not magic based on potions and amulets necessarily, um, although that, you know, that sort of stuff does exist in this world. Um, I, I wanted to create something, you know, a magical system that felt like it more closely resembled the real world. Like this is a almost a magical um, it's much more timeless. It's not modern. It's not a contemporary story, obviously, but it's it's something that feels like, it um, it paints a portrait of the world that we live in, and so for me, obviously, you know, wonder wonder is sort of mysterious in book one, and we will learn more about it as as the books develop. Um, but at its core, it's like it's just a source of energy that can be manipulated in different ways. And in the same way that if I took a time machine back to you know the 1500s, I would not be able to explain to someone how electricity works. I'm sure there are plenty of people who could. I am not one of them. Um, <laughs> you know that to me, that's how wonder works in this world. Is that it's there. Um, it's used in different ways. There are different 
people who can and cannot manipulate it in certain ways. Um, but if you ask the average person on the street, they wouldn't necessarily be able to pin down how this system works. And that that's useful in two ways in that it has this kind of sense of mystery and also in the sense that I never have to get too technical and scientific about it <laughs> and explain it. Yes. I mean, I was thinking immediately of dark matter, <laughs> dark energy or dark matter. Oh, of course, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, yeah. I Which we don't know phase, much about my, yet, so. I, I no, especially me. I definitely don't know much about it, but I went through a, a, a new scientist, uh, reading the new scientist phase. Um, well, I'm still in that phase, let's be real. Um, uh, and loved, yeah, loved reading about all of that, all of that stuff. So probably unconsciously that that's something that might have influenced it without me even making the connection. Yes. And I suppose that's what makes literary magic so nice is when there is a little edging of possibility. You know, we can call it magic, but maybe it's not magic. Maybe it's actually, you know, something tangible that we just don't understand. I mean, it seemed to me that there was a rat a rationality gloss involved in the story, yeah. if that makes sense. I mean, I know, you know, there are fabulous jellies and things and chandeliers that we make ourselves, <laughs> but there was still, and I guess all good fantasy has this, this sense that, you know, it's, you can accept it. <laughs> right. And that, and that was important to me is that this isn't just a word of a world of absurdities where things happen for no good reason. And I think a lot of what's on the page in book one, it can sometimes feel that way that will, there's a smoking parlor in this hotel and why, like, why, why, <laughs> why is it there? Who makes it? But you know, that there is the feeling that these absurd things are happening for no reason, but actually, you know, no, there is, there is an explanation behind them. And thing, as I said, things will sort of come out more in, in the later books, but that's an important part of world building is that you need to feel as a reader, you need to feel like you are anchored in reality in some way. Um, you can get away with so much ridiculousness if the reader feels like, well, you know, I can, I can suspend my disbelief a little bit. I can feel like this in some way represents the world that I'm familiar with. Mm. Yes. Um, can we talk just briefly about the notion of a cursed child? Um, is it, would you see that in a, almost as metaphoric in some way for the way we, you know, we or schools can be intolerance to difference or, you know, the need to find scapegoats? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thought. It's, it's not something that was sort of consciously in my head. I wasn't ever trying to write anything too metaphorical or, or, you know, allegorical, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that Morrigan, as I said, she feels the way it, it is an extreme version of how a lot of children do feel in, in their real lives because they're isolated by, by difference, whatever that difference is. Um, it can easily feel like, you know, well, I was, I was born with the, whatever this point of difference is about me and I'm, I'm not like the other children and that makes me whatever, that makes me wrong, that makes me evil, whatever. Um, and Morrigan is very much the, you know, that taken to the extreme. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that in, in Morrigan I've sort of presented a child who, as I say, she she has been conditioned to feel that way. The whole world is telling her you are at fault, you are to blame, from her own family to, um, you know, the cook in the house where she lives and the and the local and and national government. And I mean, there's the the cursed child's register that she has to be on. Um, so it is a ridiculous, overblown um, version of that. Um, but it was important to me as well that Morrigan has this voice in her head 
that is very practical and very rational that even though she carries this sort of emotional burden of I'm to blame, this is my fault, I've brought the curse with me, she also has that little voice ticking away in the background saying, that's ridiculous. You know, these grown-ups around you that are telling you that you're wrong and that, t- that are telling you that you're at fault, that they're the wrong ones and they're irrational and, and silly. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, the spoiled jam, for example, <laughs> you know, some of the, right. the things she gets blamed for are pretty, pretty far fetched. And even even she says, you know, that this is really going too far. Right. And she's so she's so outraged. Mm. Um, and I, I love Morgan. She's I mean, obviously, I made her, but she's <laughs> she's sort of my, my favorite character. There are a lot of larger than life kind of characters in here. And, and Morgan isn't often, you know, when people have told me who their favorite character is, she's not often cited. But um, you know, for me, she's very much like become my favorite character because she's so gutsy um, and she's so rational yes. um, in spite of everything around her. Yes. I mean, when you when you um, develop Morrigan, did you have in mind that she was, you know, nine book series material <laughs> that it would take nine books to kind of bring <laughs> her to her through her arc? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the th- Morrigan first occurred to me as an adult character. So I think I was about 18 or 19 and I was just kind of loosely plotting out a story about a little girl who goes to live with her Aunt Morrigan. And Aunt Morrigan was this fabulous, eccentric woman, uh, you know, all of basically all of my favourite kinds of heroines, <laughs> you know, in, in the tradition of Mary Poppins and Joe March and, and those sort of fabulous women, um, who was gutsy and brave and peculiar and, and had an odd little sense of humour um, and eccentric and slightly magical. Um, and I realised I was much more interested in that character and, and I started kind of backtracking and, and working backwards and thinking, well, what happened? Where did she come from? What happened in her childhood to make her this interesting woman? Um, where, did, where was she from? Where did she grow up? And that's what brought in the city of Nevermore is that I had to create this dangerous, peculiar, fantastical place more or less to explain how she becomes the grown up Morrigan that I have in my head. Um, so I do have, I do have sort of her arc, um, over the nine books, um, you know, planned. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. And, um, 20th Century Fox has secured film rights. Um, how is that progressing, progressing? Have you already cast the film in your mind? (laughs) Do you have like a a Morrigan? (laughs) No, it feels, um, people ask me that question a lot and it Mm. feels kind of so audacious for me to even think in those terms. I just think, well, I don't know. I mean, I I do, I do have some kind of, um, in theory, I have some kind of say in the casting or, you know, um, consultation on that. Um, so I think that they will hopefully sort of be, you know, interested in having a conversation about it. It's not something I've totally considered um I think I would have to think about it a little more in depth before I started naming names the only weird exception to this is that when the whole time that I was writing this book um I was I never I'm I'm not I know that writers do and that and that probably gives them like a nice um you know accuracy in in the voice as they're pinning down a characters I know some some writers do think about actors playing out the the dialogue in their head to me, my characters have just been the characters in my head all along. But um, Fenestra, the the giant, the, the Magnificat, the giant mm. snarky talking cat, <laughs> um, in my head, weirdly, she has always spoken in the voice of Joe Brand. Mm. Do you know, um, do you ever watch QI? 
Uh, no, but I know I know who Joe Brand is. Mm. Oh, yes, you know I who Joe Brand is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I'm used to people saying who's Joe Brand. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's always spoken weirdly in the voice of Joe Brand, and I think that did give some that that kind of helped me develop the voice of of Finestra. Weirdly enough, I love Joe Brand so, and yeah. I love Finestra. Finestra's so. a great character oh. for sure. And, and look, um, yeah. you know. Joe, um, I was going to say Joe Brandt. Finestra is not the um, the only animal who's kind of empowered and and talking, um, and and not the only creature. I mean, the Hotel Deucalion, for example, is seems almost sentient to me. Um, yes. Do you think one of the the little things that's playing through through the book and maybe through all the books is you know this notion of what constitutes advanced intelligence and who's in charge? Absolutely. That that is going that is something that comes out a lot more in book two, um, and is going to be a very big important subplot or, or theme um, throughout the series. Uh, so I, I hint very there's there is a lot of foreshadowing in book two. Sorry, in book one, there are a lot of things that are just tiny little Easter eggs that you your eyes would sort of glide over that will become much more important later in the series. Um, and without wanting to give too much away. Um, there, there is the uh, when when I don't know if you remember the bit where Jupiter, um, where Inspector Flintlock first comes to the Hotel Ducalion and and he's sort of reading out this laundry list of um, of Jupiter's you know achievements and the things that he has to his name and one of the things that he mentions is that he's the secretary for the Wanamal Rights Commission um, and so this this idea of the Wanamal animals and animals um that is something that comes much more to the fore in book two and will become a really important part of the plot um and i'd like to speak more about it but i don't want to give any spoilers to ruin the story <laughs> but it's a good hint though <laughs> thank you <laughs> hopefully not too cryptic <laughs> yeah no no it, i i wouldn't expect you to give anything away but um do, will you, do you i mean i guess morrigan's going to get older so you can i one can imagine that um things will happen that normally happen with coming of age um do you will the books get a little darker do you think as well at times absolutely mm. yeah book two is already darker <laughs> um yeah i definitely because this is you know i i almost sort of think of it if hopefully i get to write all nine books i i'm sort of thinking of it as like a three act um sort of structure so um, certainly the, it will it will become darker in the next book and the third, but then also, you know, what I'm thinking of as Act 2 and Act 3, the you know, the next kind of trilogies, um, this, the you know, this is a world that is sort of, you know, in book one you almost feel like you're on the brink of some kind of disastrous danger that's sort of lurking just on the horizon um, and that, you know, Morrigan feels that she herself has brought some kind of, some kind of danger to to Nevermore. Um, that is something that will really develop, and and things get quite. I don't want to use the word political because that sounds quite quite bad. But <laughs> but you know that this is a real world that represents our own, um, yes. and so it, and it's a world with lots of problems. And Morrigan is at the heart of some of those problems. Yes. I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to, to speak about it without giving too many things away. I, I won't ask any more questions, but it does sound to me like, um, no, you're right. and, and from what I've seen, you know, certainly power structures again and, and you know, who's running the show and what constitutes power, what kinds of power there are seems to be a, a pretty um, important theme. So I imagine that'll play out more. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's really at the heart of, of the story. Definitely.
Mm, wonderful. Um, so how can readers find out more about you? I know your books are everywhere. Any book sh- any good bookshop <laughs> will have them. <laughs> but uh, where can people go to find out more and, and get further um, tantalized? Well, uh, you, can, we, you can follow me on, uh, on Instagram and on, on Twitter. My name is at Digressica. I'll put um, the links so in the nice show notes. Speech. Yes, great. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my publishers are always sort of announcing new things. And um, uh, and actually, I think I can I, – I, you mentioned the movie. I, I can give you – it's not exactly a scoop, but you will be the first person that I have actually been able to say it to oh. out loud because just this morning um, the news was sort of broken on Hollywood Reporter about the, the person who is going to be in charge of the film. Would you like to know who it is? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So, so it's just been announced. Um, Drew Drew Goddard, um, who who made The Martian and Cabin in the Woods, um, and TV's Daredevil, um, is is sort of at the helm of this novel. It's just come out, um, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, so, so it's in hand. It's he's not just a, an option. That sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. That feels weird saying it out loud, actually, because I've been sitting on this for about six months, <laughs> and every time someone asks me, I'm like, "Oh, I don't know, maybe." Uh, yeah, and you don't no, want to get very... too excited about things like films because I guess you know they, a lot of stuff gets optioned that doesn't actually make it to the, oh, the big screen. Yeah, and look, I'm sure it will be a long time before anything actually gets on the screen. Um, but, but yeah, no, Drew, Drew is a pretty brilliant and talented dude so I'm very excited about that yeah and it's uh, it's obviously going to be a big deal so um ooh, exciting uh, good luck with it and thank <laughs> you so much for dropping by and um listeners I'll have all the details in the show notes so you can you can go and, and look up Jessica and and connect with her and uh you definitely want to read the book it's very fast and very fun so thank you thank you <laughs> Jessica thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure bye for now